0: Welcome to Louise's Health Kick podcast with Louise Mercier. Louise is a nutritional therapist, award-winning author of How Food Shapes Your Child, and a presenter on Early Years TV Food Channel. As well as all this, Louise is the force behind the Health Kick, promoting a healthy lifestyle without the contradictory and often misplaced advice in the world of nutrition. Hello, and welcome to Louisa's Health Kick podcast. Today I am delighted to be joined by Elliot Ray. Elliot is a husband, dad, speaker, author, and founder of musicfootballfatherhood.com. This is the parenting platform for men encouraging open conversations around fatherhood. Elliot has an impressive background, holding several senior positions in diversity, equality and inclusion, making him one of the UK's most prominent speakers and writers on topics around fatherhood, masculinity, mental health, equal parenting and gender equality. So you've got an awful lot going on, Elliot. So thank you very much for joining us today um, for my subject talking about all things to do with mental health. So to start with, could you just tell me what your story is, what led you into all that you've been doing in terms of the the sort of mental health message and the fatherhood message
1: sure yeah so thank you thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast first of all and uh yeah in terms of my journey so you know I was in um I was working in the civil service Uh, at the same time I was in a band as well with my wife I won't go into too much of that (laughs) but that was what we were doing and I was you know pretty comfortable in in that in that space of my life at at the time I was working the park for transport and then I went over to be um the head of Race Equality in, in Defra, and during that time, my daughter was born in two thousand and fifteen. Uh, and you know, we were we were ready for for parenting. It was something that we we were um, you know actively pursuing and, and 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 trying for, and it happened quite quite easily, which was all good. And the pregnancy, as pregnancy, pregnancies go, was pretty pretty smooth. Um, but my daughter's start to life was quite difficult. She contracted an infection called Group B strep. So when she was born after you know very long and difficult labour, um, she wasn't well at all, and uh, she was she had to be resuscitated when she was born, and she was she was grey and wasn't breathing. So quite a, quite a serious infection she had contracted. You know with Group B strep. You know one in ten babies die, another one in ten will have a lifelong disability after contracting meningitis. And we knew what this infection was, and we were very concerned about it. At the same time, my wife was in a bad way as well and losing lots of blood and you know there was lots of doctors around her trying to save her and lots of doctors around my daughter so that was that that was the the birth and we spent two weeks in intensive care with my daughter after she was born trying to you know treat treat this infection and I think throughout that two weeks the you know we, we were we were holding on you know we were relatively strong and the doctor's they were worried, but they, they'd they seen it before. They knew what the infection was, and they, they were quite confident that they could treat it. So there's lots of that up and down. Sometimes we'll get good news. Sometimes we'll get bad news. They had to do lots of different things like lumbar punches and all those different kind of procedures that, they, that they'll do to new babies. And at the end of the two weeks, when we thought that it was all good, we actually got the news that she had a bump on the back of her head. And that's when the doctors got really, really concerned. They thought it could be a blood clot or or something. They didn't know. Um, we had specialists coming from, from different hospital trusts. And you know, that night when we were crying and, and praying pretty much all night, just really, really worried really. And I think in my adult life, I look back and that's definitely the most difficult moment I think I've ever experienced. The next day we had an emergency MRI scan. And uh, we had the good news that it was, you know, it was bone structure and we could we could go home. So that was the end of that kind of experience. but the beginning of I guess the next chapter in our lives where I went back to my full-time job. Um, a lot of my paternity leave had been used up in the hospital so I had a few days left, went back into work and my wife was at home struggling. She was diagnosed with post anxiety. We were super paranoid about our daughter's health because that infection can come back. Um, so yeah, I started experiencing insomnia and anxiety and flashbacks and I was eventually diagnosed with PTSD. So throughout that period, <clears throat> I got super interested in, in, in mental health, and dad's mental health, in work, um, in vulnerability and masculinity and male friendships and you know, all that sort of stuff. Because for me, during that period, I never really told anyone. I never told my work colleagues or my friends. Apart from, me and my wife would talk about stuff. But apart from that, you know, I kind of pretty much hid everything from everyone. But I started writing. And that's how Music Football Fatherhood started. I started writing about fatherhood and then other dads joined me. And, you know, over the years it's grown. So it's grown to the point now we've got a a team of 20 kind of freelance writers and contributors, a social media manager, a website editor. And, you know, we're lucky enough to do amazing events. We partner with some of the big football clubs to do events. We hold online sessions called The Lodge with Dads, um, which are amazing monthly sessions. We do... A podcast a blog um and that's all culminated in in a couple of big things that's happened over the last couple of years so our book called dad which we, we published a year ago um done a lot of tv work I presented a documentary called becoming dad in january on bbc one in, in january so yeah it's taken me on an amazing on an amazing journey to be honest um but it, it, i kind it kind of you know, from a very difficult experience for me it's been a learning experience of openness and the more I've spoken about my personal experience then kind of helped others to do the same it's really changed my life really and really allowed me to do work now which I know it's a blessing to do. Um,
0: Yeah yeah I want to come back to all the amazing things that you have done and all the things that you have achieved since then but the reason behind it obviously is something that was quite obviously very personal and quite traumatic to you. Did you find when you were opening up with other fathers that they'd experienced the same sort of feelings that they weren't talking to other people and um, that they weren't opening up about it and that they were keeping everything to themselves.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, I think um, it's, it's rare to meet someone who a man who's, you know, been through a difficult experience and was super open and vulnerable about it. You know, that's for me, that doesn't necessarily happen. <laughs> you know, even in the work I do speaking with quite open men and men who, you know quite quite proactive in terms of looking after their health and well-being that's just not the case you know i was doing a session a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about why is it that men find it more difficult to to speak to their male friends or their work colleagues about their challenges and one guy said i don't know how to i've never had any practice you know and he was i don't know how old he was but he looked like he was in his 40s or 50s <laughs> he's a grown man and for me that was just so powerful you know he'd never had any practice like he didn't have, didn't know how to didn't know where to start and i think that's just for a lot of men that's just what it is you know as children we don't do it as teenagers we definitely don't do it so then when we get to you know adulthood and fatherhood it's it's unlikely that at that point you're just going to kind of magically switch and
0: it's become habitual to keep things inside. How much? Uh, I mean, if we look through history at kind of the the depiction of masculine strength and and you know the portrayal of of what a man in you know should be um, in inverted commas, and there is this this huge message historically that men shouldn't be seen to to cry, that men should you know man up, and that message is obviously held so deep rooted within men. Um, and we see the the way that different children are treated. So boys are treated differently to girls, and boys are you know expected not to, you know, be as emotional. They oh, just you know toughen up. And and we still do that, unfortunately, as society. We're still seeing that message happening but obviously historically that's a really strong message so men of a certain age that's all they've ever heard that's all they've ever listened to and that's in them that actually male strength is not to show emotion and male strength is to be the one that holds things together how how much work have we got to do to change that because that that is starting to happen I think and we are encouraging a message to change but it's it's a massive hill to climb isn't it
1: yeah, it is. And it is deep work. You know, these are kind of entrenched views, just mainstream views. They're not even like niche. You know, these, these are just normal views. And the Fawcett Society, they're a charity. They did lots of work around gender. They did a, a research piece a little while ago and they looked at parenting and they found that as parents in general, we are more likely to encourage our young girls to do, you know, traditionally masculine things like play football, wear blue, uh, play with trucks, that kind of stuff. You know, I do it. My daughter was, was when her, in her own old school, she was the only girl on a school football team. <laughs> she goes to a new school now, so it's different. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I was really encouraging her to get in, into football and stuff like that. But we're, we're more likely to do that with our little girls than we are with our sons. We're less likely to encourage our sons to do traditionally feminine stuff, like, for example, ballet. Or you know, wearing pink, for example, or play with a doll's house or a kitchen set. And that's really interesting. I think it goes down to our own, our own kind of no matter what we say and what we like to believe, we think, what we really think about gender roles, and that can come through in how we parent. So I think it's for it's for you know a lot of parents to just think about actually really what do they really think you know, and, and how is that influencing how they how they parent? Um, and I think a lot of us will find that we, we like to believe we have these views of equality and, and whatnot, but when it comes to how we raise our children, maybe that doesn't necessarily come through. So I think for parents, there is that, but also, you know, media has a big part to play. Um, the education system and teachers, their bias will come through there as well. So there's lots of different things here, and it comes down to government policy around parental leave and how we, how we, uh, how we set expectations for what parents do and what the dad and mum's role is from, from the workplace policies and how that kind of then influences our childhood and who we see being the caregiver, you know? So, yeah, there's, there's loads of work to do. <laughs> there's a lot.
0: There is there is loads of work to do. And let's get on to what you're doing to support that because you're you're really active in terms of trying to change this message and encourage the open conversations for men. So tell me about the book and it's a collection of stories, isn't it? Is it twenty stories? How did that come about? How did the did the fathers get in touch with you? Did you put something out there to get people to come forward? Tell me about that and then how you got to be published and, and sort of that journey there with the book.
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting story. Um, I'll give you the condensed version because <laughs> I could talk for so long on this. <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, so I was working in DEFRA, so the, the Department of Environment and Food and World Affairs at the time, 2019, April. And, uh, you know, we were doing our work. Um, so I was working my full time job, but I also was doing MFF. And I knew that we had amazing people in the group and in our community and, and stories being shared but there was nowhere where you could kind of access those stories altogether and where those stories are told in a in a really honest and vulnerable way that just didn't exist, not just for us, but just as far as I know it in, in the world. So I had the idea, I think it was April 19th, 2019, and then put it out in our WhatsApp group. And everyone was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do it. So I think about 10 of the stories and the dads came from our kind of immediate team. But then we had to kind of reach out to other dads to, to you know get more maybe more diversity or different experiences so we kind of had that process of reaching out um so I knew nothing about the publishing world at that time but luckily I met just randomly a lady called Stacy at work who had a twin sister who self-published a book so they were like look what you need to do is you need to get an agent and you need to um yeah go, go through that route so they told me about what an agent was and how to contact them. So that weekend I you know drafted a letter, sent it around to 20 agents. And within a week, I think about half of them got back to me and they all offered representation, which was you know, pretty much unheard of. It was like literally in a week, it was crazy. So I'm thinking, oh great, like <laughs> made it. That's it. It's done. <laughs> so um, I had to choose and I went with an agent at the time. We approached publishers and they all said they love the writing. They love the concept of the book um, but because we're not famous, I don't think anyone's going to read it. So I was like, "What?" And then, and then my agent at the time was like, Hey, Ellie needs to get more famous. So I was like, well, do you want me to go on Love Island or run down the street naked? Like, what do I do? Like, I, first of all, I, just want, I don't want to get more famous, but also that's, just not practical in, you know, six months or whatever it is. So, so I changed agents. <laughs> and then the next year, 2020, we went out, back out to, um, publishers and they said the same thing they said that they loved the writing but you're not famous no one's going to buy the book so my agent at the time my new agent Jamie he actually experienced a stillbirth um so he he had, I actually asked him to write for the book so I think this may be the first time an agent has turned contributor to their client's book but Jamie is now in the book so I was like you know what I know these publishers are, are wrong what we're going to do we're going to self-publish the book Stacy, who I've met at work earlier told me how to manufacture and produce a professional hardback, um, professionally edited book and get it into the bookstores and waterstones and, and all that sort of foils and stuff like that. So I followed her advice. We raised, we started a crowd fund on New Year's, so International Men's Day 2020. Within the first day of launching a crowdfunder, we'd raised 4,000 um, pounds. Within a week, we'd raised 10,000 pounds. Within 12 days, we'd raised 12 and a half thousand pounds. And so for me, that was all the validation I needed to know that this is a good idea. So we did the work, finished the book. You know, I was really anal about making sure this book is an, an amazing quality book. You know, it looks visually fantastic. It's hardback, professionally edited. It reads amazingly well. And we released it, self-published it on the 1st of May last year, um, put all our effort into, the, into a PR campaign. And I can, you know, proudly say, we, the PR campaign we had was amazing. It's featured across most of the mainstream newspapers. I've been on channel four on BBC news, talking about it. Um, we've had an amazing influence cam- campaign of influencers sharing the book. It's done amazing work. It's in loads of the NHS mother and baby units across the UK. Um, it's inspired the documentary. It's gone on to do amazing things commercially. It's made the Amazon bestseller charts made the Hive independent bookstore top 20 um, charts on its release. So it's done amazing work. And, you know, I talk to publishers now. And I'm like, oh, you know, sorry, it's too late. <laughs> but I think the irony is that, you know, as a society, we, we say we want men to talk and to speak and whatnot. But then when they actually do it, do we really think that that's the cool thing to do? Or are we really going to support that, you know, not famous dads, I'm talking about everyday dads, right? Do we really want to hear from them? And so from that experience, you know, I would say, I don't know. People, the people want to hear, but.
0: I think the I think people do. I think it's a sad, it's a bit of a sad situation, isn't it? Where we feel like we can't do something that we really are passionate and, and knowledgeable and experienced in, unless we have a famous face. And you could have a famous face for something completely inconsequential, but but be famous, and therefore you have this platform. And you now have that platform, and we'll talk about the BBC programme in a moment, but you now have that platform, but that's from a better grounding and a better start than somebody who, as you say, ran down the street naked or went on Love Island. Um, so thankfully you didn't choose that route. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I could have been very different. Who knows?
0: Yeah, yeah. But I, I, but I think the message is clear, that there is definitely the need um, you know the success of the book shows that there is the need for what you've done and and more obviously to come from from that. So so the book is the start, and then that led to how, tell me about the program. So how did that lead to you getting the the program with the BBC?
1: Yeah, so the book was released. I remember in June last year, there was a guy called Zach who um, messaged me on Instagram, and I gave him my phone number. He said he's, he's a producer for TV. And I was like, you know, at the time, I was like, yeah, whatever, just you know, whatever, we'll, we'll chat. So he called me, and I remember I live in Watford. I was walking through the shopping centre, walking my dog. And he was like, yeah, we want to do a documentary about your work and your, your life as a dad and stuff. And I was just like, what? Are you joking? Like, Is this some prank? Is it April Fool's Day? What are you talking about? And um, so I was like, can you email me? Because I need to know like this is legit. And so he <laughs> emailed me. I was like, okay, maybe maybe you're not lying. So it took ages to get commissioned. The commission process was so long. It took about four months, four or five months um, to get commissioned, and they wanted to, you know, they wanted to talk to me quite a lot. I had to do a screen test, and you know, they, they don't want to put money into a, a program that isn't actually going to resonate or be really good. So it took a lot of time to be commissioned, and it finally got commissioned in um, maybe like October. So we started filming straight away, and we filmed for about three months, then to the end of last year and kind of into January. And I just learned so much, you know, I learned so much about. Uh, the work I've been doing and I do is all about conversations and facilitating conversations. So in that, but the challenge of doing it on TV is that you're kind of meeting some people, a lot of people for the first time and you're responsible for creating that connection very quickly and then creating the space and the trust for them to talk to you in front of the world. And that's a very different experience to doing it like you know one to one or in a corporate setting or you know this is this is something that's going to be broadcast is like a prime time show on BBC1 so i felt a lot of pressure i felt a lot of personal pressure doing that um meeting so in the documentary i meet the deputy chief of midwifery for the nhs jessica reed and that was very tough because um you know i was very very clear that i didn't want to come across as like you know bashing the nhs i very much support the nhs but at the same time there's these questions that need to be asked so getting that balance again was tough i met Adrian ledsam the mp she looks after the family hubs and she holds a budget so that was a difficult conversation as well um in terms of getting that right balance between trust and challenge but ultimately it was an amazing experience you know i look back at it my dad's in it my wife's in it my daughter it's so personal you know it's in my house it's shot here so um yeah, it's an amazing, it's just an amazing thing, you know. It really, really did change my life, and that opened up other things. Like I went on Loose Women a couple of days later on, and that was amazing too. Um, so yeah, it's it's just you know, as you said, for me, I'm so glad that the platform I have now is built on a foundation, and actually, it's not about notoriety or or anything like that. It's about for me being it, just being able to do my work and and make impact. Um, and there'll be, mo- there'll be moments of these highs that are very visible and that's great, but on a day-to-day basis, you know, my work is like this in different forums and that's what I enjoy and that's what I love doing. So yeah, very, 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 very happy. And uh, I've got a shout out to Zach, the producer of the show, who, who is just brilliant really from the beginning of trusting me, um, helping me through the process. Yeah, the, he works so hard. When I see a documentary now, I can't I can't look at it in the same way. I'm like, yeah, they shot that, walking in.
0: You've had that inside information. Yeah, they're
1: walking to a cafe. I'm like, they, they walked in five times, <laughs> literally. Yeah.
0: Is it something that you think you would – I know you, you said it was quite a, a challenging experience, but obviously the the platform it enables you to have and to, to spread that to such a bigger audience. Is it something you could see yourself doing again? Is it a world you would like to get into again? Maybe.
1: Or? yeah maybe but it's got to be relevant you know it's got to be relevant like I wouldn't want to do anything just to be on the tv like it has to be genuinely something that I care about and genuinely something that contributes to my work um like I'm actually doing some other stuff so we're going to be on tv for the father's day we're doing a BBC One father's day feature so there is there is more work that we're doing but it has to be relevant you know for as long as it's relevant that's all good but I'm not going to go and do like you know homes under the hammer or something like that no
0: absolutely. there's no 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 fame for famous sake is not is not what you're looking for is it it's it's definitely not no
1: yeah I have an interesting relationship with that kind of stuff like I'm you know I'm not even on Instagram really like I post once a month or something like I'm I'm probably the most public private person (laughs) you'll ever meet like people know a lot about my life but then I'm not really out there like that like I think I think and this may be a lot of off topic but I think um we are sold the wrong things in terms of fame. And I think there's a lot of people chasing, chasing a bigger platform and and, and we're fighting for our voices to be heard, but for what, you know, for, for what really like, it's quite empty. I've seen it, it's quite empty. So unless you have, I think you can you can thank you wrong, that can contribute to your your goal, but for me it's about purpose. And I've met so many people who have that level of fame but feel empty, don't have purpose, don't feel like they're working towards a, a goal. And we we know where that leads in terms of, you know, mental health and what, what what not. And people that are super happy just doing their thing, you know. So it's about finding a balance for me, definitely.
0: No, absolutely. I think it sounds like you have the balance about right in terms of, you know, I see nothing wrong with shying away from social media. It's not a world I, I like or I'm comfortable with myself. And I think it's a necessary evil in some ways, um, but certainly not to not to the extent that some people take it. And that the misconception, I think, has a lot to do with mental health and that, that sort of almost like fake world that people inhabit and, and portray that I mean parenting is a good example of this and I was I was talking to Sue Atkins on the last podcast about the perfect parenting posts on Instagram and then and how you can look and compare and think, well, well, I don't have a nice playroom and I don't have this and I don't do that with them. But it's it's staged, it's not real, and it doesn't represent happiness. A messy room with a happy child is probably a better parenting picture than the perfect playroom, you know. So it's, it's a strange world and it's a distorted world. And I think it's certainly for – I worry for my son's eight now, and that is such a part of, of – not for him, thankfully, but that world that they're growing into – it's so heavy on, on all the filters and the perfect this and the perfect that and the instantness And it's, it's not a world I'm particularly comfortable with. And I'd like to think that hopefully by the time he's a teenager, we might have gone back the other way a little bit. Um, but the uh, fingers crossed on that one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, there's so there's so much. You know, for me, normally it's just LinkedIn now. I use LinkedIn because I feel like I can have good conversations on there. Um, like I can learn a lot. People share good stuff. And so I'll be on there and I feel good on LinkedIn, but when I go on Instagram, I don't don't feel good most of the time. I come off and I just feel frustrated and I'm like, why? (laughs) Why am I going on there? I don't feel good.
0: I, I must give a shout out to you, uh, to my, my Claire Saxton, bless her, who does all of that, because I don't even have Instagram on my phone, but I am on Instagram, so I don't even see it. But bless her, she goes on there and she does it all for me, because I've, I go in there and I like have a shudder, you know, when you go in there and you look and it's like, oh, I don't like this world and I'll quickly come out again. And it's not a nice place to be. It's probably the worst place to be of all of them, I think. So no, I, I have to shout out to Claire, who, who bless her, lives in that world, <laughs> does it does it all. <laughs>
1: yeah and i've got a shout out to matt who does that for mff because matt's amazing our content creator and he does that really really well
0: so what's you've mentioned what's sort of next so what what would you really like to see change i mean throughout the month i've been researching men's health and the disparities and there's all sorts of you know shocking statistics and and shocking facts about men's health um and the fact that you know men don't go to the doctors and this isn't just about mental health this is about you know any sort of physical health you know and it comes back to men feeling embarrassed or not feeling open or not feeling comfortable or able to, to talk about things. This whole get on with it, man up, you know, is applies not just to mental health, but physical health. And what can we really do um, as a society? I know this is a huge question, um, but what can we, we've talked about parenting, but what can we do in general to the men in our lives? So we've all got, you know, husbands, fathers, sons, uncles, brothers, friends, cousins, We all, you know, we all have some man in our lives. What can we kind of do to look out for, to open conversations, just each and every one of us on a day to day basis?
1: Yeah, I think each of us, this is really good. I always like to focus on the individual rather than the big, you know, systemic changes. But I think on an individual level, there's a lot to learn, you know, for all of us on a lot of different topics, so, like the menopause is something that I'm learning a lot. You know, it's, it's something that's become more prominent in the workplace. And
0: I did a podcast, listen out for my interview with a lovely lady called Alison um, from Sweden. That's coming up in my female health theme. And she was, you know, really fascinating. She's, she works predominantly in the menopause and supporting women. Um, but it's such an area, as you say, in the workplace that isn't really getting better, but isn't really fully supported. And women, I mean, women are just, you know, treated historically as hysterical. If they, if they mentioned anything to do with, with, you know, feelings of emotions, they were depicted as hysterical. And that was actually a medical term for things like postnatal depression or the menopause. They were just deemed hysterical. So, so women have their own health issues. Um, definitely that's been covered in a different theme. But, yeah, the menopause in the workplace is a really big issue as well.
1: Yeah, and it's only in the like last year or so I've seen it, you know, become a thing that people are talking about. <laughs> and I have learned loads of like learning to do there, of just understanding, you know. I, I have an experience, obviously, so just to understand. So I think on a basic level, it's just understanding, you know, learning, reading, listening, watching. So the more we can, and the resources are there as well. You know it's not to say these resources aren't there you don't have to go and ask someone to to tell you like there's 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 books there's programs that people can listen and, and learn from and i think when we have that and we actually take step outside ourselves and you know we really humble ourselves to understand we don't know an issue about an issue and we want to learn about something like for me, for me that's the first step because then your, your your brain expands right your your perspective changes and all of a sudden now you see things differently, things that were, they seem obvious now, you know, but because you didn't understand, you didn't see it. Whereas now it's like, oh, actually, I, 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 I see this. So I think it's about understanding, and when it comes to male mental health, you know, what are the common causes of depression, male depression, you know, postnatal depression. And there are some, there are some kind of big life events. Um, that can obviously contribute to it. So relationship breakdowns, for example, um, someone losing their job, physical health, uh, you know, those, 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 those big things that if, if one of our co- colleagues or family members are going through, we know, oh, that's likely to potentially cause them some, some difficulties and then maybe they may experience. So just being aware of that and then being aware of what, what it looks like, how it manifests, and you know, depression in men will look, can look. Um, obviously, I'm I'm generalising here. Everyone's different, but it can look slightly different. So in men, it may not be so much withdrawal or sadness, um, but it can be things like overworking, or risk taking. I um, mean, you know, substance abuse anger, outbursts, they are all symptoms that are a little bit more prominent in men.
0: Would you say um, addictive tendencies, not just with substance abuse, but something like extreme exercise, for example, if there's a sudden change and it's kind of because it's like control, isn't it? I can control this part by exercise and we know exercise is good for us and it releases endorphins, which helps to reduce stress and everything. But when it's taken to the extreme, it can actually have a negative impact on health. But I suppose we could look out for a change to that degree. If somebody's throwing themselves into something and it's out of character, but it's really pushing can affect their physical health. They could be doing it to avoid something else.
1: Yeah, a lot of it is the avoidance. You know, and that's where the overworking comes in. It's like, I'd rather not address this or, or, or talk about this thing, things. So I'm just going to put myself into work, you know? So it's about those things. But just, they become obvious once you know. But if you don't know, you, you don't know. So I think it's about educating ourselves and then understanding. I think once we've done that, and something that I'm becoming more and more interested in is we... You know, we've been asking men to be more open, okay. But I think there is the other, the other massive fifty percent of this is for us on the receiving end of that openness. Whether you're a man or woman, how equipped are you to to handle that conversation? You know, and it's something that I've had to learn massively through MFF. Actually, I've had to learn it. I remember when Alec Alec wrote for our book. Um, and his, his story is that his wife died during childbirth. And I remember when I first spoke to him and maybe like it was in 2017 or 18 and he called me and I think it was the first kind of conversation I'd had where, like, I like to talk basically. Like, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to say. I felt, I felt like I felt awkward. I didn't know how to, I didn't know, I didn't know what, what my role was in that conversation. And I think I did okay. I just listened and whatnot. But now I feel so much better equipped to have that conversation because I understand it's not actually about my emotions. Um, it's not about how uncomfortable I feel. This person doesn't want necessarily, you know, my sympathy. They want me to be normal with them. They want me to 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 have a conversation, to, to ask that question that maybe, you know, could be uncomfortable but they actually want to talk most people want to talk about stuff they like they want to talk and so since then having conversations like on our podcast we've had a conversation with a guy last year called Nick Clivero, who had who has a son but he was diagnosed Nick was diagnosed with cancer he had three weeks left to live so having a conversation with him about how he told his son that he had a terminal illness about his acceptance Um, around death, around his relationship with his fiance, you know, having those really, really, really difficult conversations has taught me about how to hold space for people. And I think it's about, you know, maybe that is like, not everyone's going to do that, but just just being aware of how, how how are you going to have a conversation? Like what what are you going to be like? How are you going to encourage that person? How are you going to be you know supportive, but not judgmental, how are you going to listen? Being an active listener is really important. You know, are you going to signpost them to, to you know, male mental health support groups, peer support, or professional support? And so I think we all need to kind of kind of like get a little bit better at that because I don't think a lot of us are. Not, not it's not a criticism. I think we're just not brought up that way.
0: I think people as well assume that if somebody opens up to them, that they have to fix them, and that isn't the case at all, is it? They don't. they Sometimes people can't be fixed. And it's not, it's not our role to try to do that. There may be, you know, professionals who can certainly work with them more on that. But sometimes if people talk, you don't need to feel like you have to fix them Or I think something that people often do is, well, I did this. No, it's not about you. (laughs) It's not about you. And we need to remove our, as you say, we can't be judgmental, but we also need to remove our perhaps personal feelings and opinions and just listen as active listening is really important, but we don't need to feel that we can fix them all. Sometimes there isn't a solution to offer them. The signposting, as you say, and I'm certainly putting out loads of links for for signposting this month, but but we don't need to fix them in the there and then. They're not looking for that, and we shouldn't be trying to do that, I think, because people assume that's what they have to do.
1: Yeah, on that, I, was, I did a, a session um, with a corporate client on Tuesday, an insurance company, and uh, we had a panel event with different dads, and one of the guys, we are talking about male friendships, which I'm getting really, really in- interested in. And one of the guys said that he would never call his friend for a catch-up. Like he just wouldn't do it. Like he just wouldn't feel comfortable calling his friend for a catch-up. And I just thought that was super interesting, you know, like going to that point around around feeling what we need to fix things and and how how open we can be. And I think men, like what he said there, I don't know why I was so surprised because I probably shouldn't be, but I think that is quite true for a lot of men. They just wouldn't call their friends for a catch-up. They might call their friends to arrange something. Oh, we're going here. blah blah, blah, have you got that? But to actually just catch up and be like, what's going on? You know, like a lot of men don't do that. And I think it does go back to that thing of when sometimes when we have challenges, you know, the, the pride a lot of have a lot of men have in terms of, they don't want someone else to fix it for them. They want the answers. Um, Sometimes there are no answers. So what's the point in talking about it kind of thing, you know? Um, but yeah, I think male friendships are super interesting. Actually, I think I need to just write a paper on it or something and do some more research because I think it, it is um, it is kind of at the core of what we're talking about here in terms of in terms of uh, you know openness and vulnerability in men.
0: Mm, it sounds like a plan because it is something that you can kind of see men being very comfortable talking about certain things, football or, you know, other things, but not feelings. And they'll have very open conversations and, you know, WhatsApp conversations about all sorts of things. So they do talk and there's definitely talking going on, but it's it's this sort of subject matter um, that is perhaps keeping it to a, a sort of surface level and not delving below, which obviously female friends, again, stereotyping a little bit, but they do tend to do that. They We do tend to go, Quite deep into emotions, and will complain, or will moan, or will will open up, or will ask for help. But that I have seen a difference in my own sort of circles, and and you know, even with my husband and his friends, it's very, you know, just surface level conversations. Um, and you will be like, "What on earth? Are you, what on earth have you got to talk about? you were always talking." But there is a lot to talk about in in life. So as as you can demonstrate from this podcast, and we are still talking, um, and perhaps we should be uh, we should be drawn to a close. But I, I could talk to you so much because. You've got so much going on. You've got this amazing backstory with your own personal experience. And that's building from that to really raise awareness of of a real complex, interwoven sort of nature, really, of of different subjects is not just one thing. There's lot to cross over, and I think it, you know, may take you in, in many different directions as you as you get interested and think, oh, I'll go down this avenue now and then down another one. But that's a good place to be. And and now you have this platform and this this voice and this network of amazing guys around you um, to be able to use that to to you know to share this message. So thank you for being on on my podcast to share this message, and um, and hopefully we will do some good work in the month and raise awareness and keep an eye on what you're doing in the future
1: thank you thanks it's been a pleasure i really enjoyed the conversation yeah thank you for having me it's been great
0: you've been listening to louise's health kick podcast with louise massier discussing all things health and nutrition to show you that food and health are intrinsically linked and teaching you how amazing you can feel find out more at www.thehealthkick.co.uk or read her book, How Food Shapes Your Child, or get in touch on social media. This is a 1386 audio production.